Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Mark Leibovich, author and staff writer for The Atlantic. Prior to his time at The Atlantic, Mark spent 10 years as chief national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine, covered national politics in The Times Washington Bureau, and worked for The Washington Post and San Jose Mercury News. Mark's four books, including his latest New York Times bestseller, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington, and The Price of Submission, are available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from Washington, D.C. Mark, welcome. Reed, thanks for having me. So, you know, we were talking before we started recording here and that the book, Thank You for Your Servitude, and I thought it was a brilliant title and, and actually a very interesting cover that the cover artist came up with. It was the unwelcome tiptoe back through 2020 that I needed, I guess is the best way to put it. Oh, I don't know if you needed that. There was so much happening so fast that once in a while, you, you know, you sort of pick out the moments of like, oh, God, I remember that. Oh, God, I remember that. You know, we, Rick and I and, and Stuart, as we were talking about before, like so many of the people that you mentioned in this book were friends of ours. We've worked with. We've known for many years. And Rick and I were talking about this actually this morning on a call. Like, you know, Rick was sort of the tip of the tip of the spear as far as never Trump Republicans. You know, as soon as the guy came down the escalator, Rick said, this is bad freaking news. And to see so many of them just go. And I was thinking about it as you're writing about sitting in the Trump hotel lobby, you have the ability to like so dissect the Washington ecosystem, right? In a way that is so brilliant to those who have known it and so enlightening to those who don't. So tell us a little bit about how you chose to be such the, I don't know, expositor of maybe some of the worst people on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually quite an interesting. I should put that on my uh, business card if I still had business cards. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on it. Thank you for the really nice introduction. I mean, essentially, there is a lot of room here. I mean, you mentioned that the book is essentially, there was a lot of going over of events that we all lived through and many of us sort of tried to forget. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we're all familiar with inherently. But what I wanted to do is sort of look at the story of Washington through the eyes of the ones who knew better, which is most elected Republicans, which is most Republicans you and I know. These are not Trump voters that people in my profession try to interview in diners in, in Ohio. <laughs> right. This is not trying to psychoanalyze Trump himself. I mean, I spent a fair amount of time with Trump just early on just because, you know, I wrote a couple of magazine stories on him and, you know, he was very generous with his access, especially early on. But the crux of the book was the carnival that broke out among the Kevin McCarthy's and the Lindsey Graham's and the Marco Rubio's and, you know, the Rudy Giuliani's and the Roger Stone's and the people who hung out at the Trump Hotel, essentially. And the Trump Hotel was this kind of cheers for like the MAGA set. It was kind of like Cinderella's castle. Cinderella herself would sometimes peacock in, uh, eat her steak dinners. And so I wanted to sort of focus on that just because I did think that that was a piece of this puzzle that was missing. I think, first of all, people 
forget that Donald Trump would not have been possible without the indulgence of the Republican Party or most of the Republican Party. And, you know, it was a character test and they failed it in epic ways, but also in very colorful ways that played out at the Trump Hotel. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the great challenges in journalism is how do you get paid to be, you know, drinking on the job? And how do you get paid to sort of hang out in hotel bars and, you know, make it party job? I mean, to be honest with you, this was not a labor of love. So that's sort of a recurring part of the book. I mean, the Trump Hotel, the view from the Trump Hotel, because I wasn't trying to out White House insider anyone or try to be Bob Woodward or Maggie Haberman or someone like that. And I was not trying to understand Trump voters, you know, the way so many people have. So that's sort of the sweet spot I tried to be. And, and in a weird way, it's kind of a sick and hopefully funny novel at the same time. You mentioned something in passing, which is, you know, the idea of failing up, right, in Washington, D.C., I used to call it the FUMU principle, right? Fuck up, move up. Like, wait, 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 that guy got that job? And it's not because you were ever in line for it. You just couldn't believe that that guy got it. And that seemed to be the Trump administration writ large. Yeah, I mean, do you think Corey Lewandowski was going to be the campaign manager for any other major presidential campaign anywhere? You think Sean Spicer was going to be a White House spokesperson for Jeb Bush or Mitt Romney or, you know, whoever. Just go down the list, right? I mean, Kellyanne Conway wasn't going to work in a White House. Reince Priebus wasn't going to be a White House chief of staff. So, yeah, so there there was a lot of that. But, I mean, Trump himself is like the poster, not even poster, the large mural child for failing upward. I mean, he has a disastrous presidency. He loses. He loses the House. He loses the Senate. He loses the White House. And now he's the front runner, like immediately. Like, were people immediately going down to Plains, Georgia to kiss the ring of Jimmy Carter after he lost however many states? Nobody went to Houston to see George H.W. Bush. Correct. All those things. So it's insane. But here he is. And the Trump Hotel, I mean, he's got these serial bankruptcies. He left in disgrace. He had, you know, a cloud of legal trouble and financial trouble, more so than any president has ever left Washington with. And yet his hotel, which is the house of disgrace, sells for a $100 million profit, you know, within months of him leaving town. Anyway, it goes on and on. But yes, there's a lot of, what was that, FUMU? FUMU, fuck up, move up. Yeah, that was like, that was perfected <laughs> during these years. You know, and just to step away from the Trump administration in particular into Washington more generally, you know, it is that place, Mark, and you talked about it in this town, which is another incredible read, sort of a narrative of how Washington works is. And, you know, I was at a back to school barbecue thing a couple of weekends ago. And there was a guy I knew and, you know, I was talking to him. He's fine. Right. But like he was scanning the whole time. Right. And as soon as he found somebody like he went to them. Right. Hey, bro. And it transported me back to the rooftop of one of those crappy squat buildings on Pennsylvania Avenue, right, where, you know, you, everybody's got a name tag on, what are you doing here, blah, 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 blah. And you see the guy, and he's probably a little too slick for his own good, and he's just, as soon as he locks in on the person who he thinks can do better for him, that's where they're headed. Oh, absolutely. No, it's true. Those scenes, like, are evident everywhere. And, and again, more so. I mean, Donald Trump was going to drain the swamp. He perfected the swamp, and there is more of that now than there ever has been. And also, you know, the sort of political bureaucracy piece of it, too, which was, you're in administration, you roll out, you go to maybe a lobby shop, maybe to a industry association, you pick up some expertise, your party gets back in, you go in at a two thirds higher level at the ag department or whatever, and you come back in. But now it's that there were people who were part of the Republican political bureaucracy, to your point, some of whom I know, I'm sure many of whom you know very well, who absolutely knew better, but just couldn't pass up the chance. Yeah. I mean, the working title of this book was They All Knew Better. 
I mean, I've never in all my years in Washington, and you probably got this too, have seen a bigger gap between what people say about Donald Trump publicly and privately. The public, you know, dear leader, we love Donald Trump. He's been such an effective president. And then in private, you know, can you believe this asshole? So, I mean, it still happens today. But, you know, this town was kind of a, had a very pox on both your houses kind of thing. And, and one of the reasons I think it did well was that a lot of conservatives and Republicans thought that it was an indictment of big government and Washington just getting too fat and happy, which I think is true. And a lot of Democrats, though, thought it was an indictment of corporatism in politics, you know, which is also true. So I was happy to have that be kind of an across the spectrum thing. But this is much more concentrated in the Republican Party, because, again, that's where the disgrace, I think, resides or the big disgrace resides. And just as an aside on the way you describe this town is I read something someplace about Veep, the mm -hmm. show on HBO, which I think was the best fiction yeah. product ever about Washington. Right. That they never note what party she's a part of. But right. when they surveyed Republicans, she's a Democrat. And when they surveyed Democrats, <laughs> she's a Republican. Exactly. Right? She was your run of the mill average egotist who showed up in the vice president's office. And when my friends would ask me, I was like, just be under understand, everybody's Jonah, right? <laughs> everybody's Jonah. Everybody's Jonah, exactly. Well, you know, I want to talk about that because, you know, you talk about McCarthy, who was a young gun, right, with Eric Cantor, now long gone, Paul Ryan, now long gone, who I want to come back to also. You know, this was a guy who wanted to put a new face on the party, right? This is a guy I knew back in California when he was minority leader. And, you know, he was always in the minority in the assembly there. And he said, you know, he'd go across the Democratic speaker and say, look, you guys are going to do this, but you just got to give me something for my guys. And Kevin would get something done for his guys. But he was always a prodigious fundraiser. And money became the coin of the realm as far as seniority in Congress. Like he was a whip, but he was a bad whip. Right. He was majority leader, but he was a bad majority. leader. Like He wasn't good at the job. He's not good at the job now. And now he's in a situation where he desperately he can taste that gavel. Right. As badly as he can taste anything. And if he rides the tiger, either it's going to take him where it wants him or it's going to eat him. It's interesting. I mean, he's one of the main characters in the book. I mean, I spent a lot of time with him. And you're right. First of all, he's very unideological. I mean, he's a very easy guy to sit and have dinner with and talk sports with and talk politics with and gossip with. I mean, he's very congenial. He's very old school backslapper, that kind of thing. Raises money. You can certainly see that. And now he's in this situation where, you know, he's just waiting for the chandelier to fall on his head. The chandelier being Trump or Trump supporters or Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, all these people he has no control over and even less respect for probably. But I haven't talked to him in a few months now. I assume he doesn't have much use for me, given how he was portrayed in the book. I haven't heard from him. But no, I mean, it seems to be a little bit falling apart here. I mean, he always thought that if he could just win the speaker's gavel, if he could just get there, even for one miserable term, with Trump torturing him and like all the MAGA heads who get elected torturing him, it doesn't matter. He's going to be former Speaker of the House his entire life, and he might get the entire Bakersfield Airport named after him, whereas Bill Thomas only has the terminal. But now it seems to, at least in the last six weeks or maybe since the Dobbs decision, it's coming apart a little bit. I mean, I always sort of assumed that if Republicans won like 15, 20 seats or more, I mean, it was his speakership. You know, it was his. You know, now I still think they'll win the House, probably they'll win a majority. But I mean, you can see Trump or Jordan or, or Marjorie Taylor Greene or any number of people stirring up trouble if his margin is like less than, you know, what people were saying it would be a few months ago. I mean, what if the margin's five seats in January? Like, what happened then? McCarthy's in trouble. I mean, I almost believe Democrats, if they can win a couple seats in the Senate, 
two would be, I think, great if they could. I mean, given where they started from, you know, and I think Trump is coughing up a number of those seats. I mean, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz. So if Republicans win the majority in the House, but they have a slim majority and it's run by the wackos, which is probably, you know, the MAGA people, Trump himself, that's going to be a terrible look. I mean, they'll impeach Biden every week or something, but they're going to look like idiots in a very public and sort of ongoing way that is a terrible look for Republicans, like sort of leading up to the next election in a way that, you know, Biden has gotten a lot done already. And I mean, I think it could be really beneficial to Democrats. I mean, I think obviously they would prefer total control again, but it wouldn't be the worst thing for them either. You mentioned Dr. Oz, and as we're recording this just a few hours ago, I saw that Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, who's retiring and there's an open Senate seat there, was endorsing Oz. And you spent a lot of time on the McCarthy's and the Ryan's and, and, you know, Lindsay and all these other people. But, you know, to me, it's the Blunts and the Portman's and the Toomey's who. Dreadful, right? Yeah, like. They were the worst of the worst because they were sympathizers. Occasionally, they sort of helped herd people in the right direction, but they could always say, well, I, you know, I never really was a part of it. Completely agree. Although I would put Toomey in a separate category because he voted for the second impeachment. But now Portman Blunt, I have no idea what their excuses are there. I mean, they all know better. They're gone. I mean, that's the thing. I was surprised by the people who were freshly reelected who had six more years in the job. I mean, McConnell, Cornyn. I know they could have solved their own problem. Lindsay could have. I mean, they all could have banded. I mean, they were all like really safe for a while. And then there are the retirees like Blunt and Portman, who for some reason, I guess, just didn't need the death threats, which is not a small thing here. I mean, I think that sort of they don't need the hassle. They want to retire peacefully and have a peaceful transfer out of power. Right. So that to me is fascinating to watch. And that really pisses me off almost more than anything else. The people who not only know better, but who don't have anything to lose except You know, just like showing a little bit of dignity. Well, and like Rob Portman goes back to Cincinnati. He lives in whatever the fanciest Cincinnati suburb is, belongs to the fanciest Cincinnati country club, is going to get on Fifth Third Bank and whatever else, you know, boards, tickets to the Reds, tickets to the Bengals, six weeks of vacation a year, probably a million bucks in passive income a year, writes a shitty book that probably sells less copies than Jared's book. And all he has to do is do the right thing and disappear. Which is what's going to happen to him anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That is a maddening thing. And, you know, I don't know what his thinking was. I mean, McConnell, by the way, I mean, there's all this revisionist sort of pitying for McConnell. Well, first of all, there should never be pity. No, no, of course not. (laughs) But there is. It's like, oh, poor Mitch McConnell. How does he keep these guys together? And Trump is torturing him and blah, blah, blah. He's saddling him with these candidates. I mean, McConnell could have gotten rid of him. You know, I I wanted to bring up McConnell, and I'm glad you did that, Mark, because everybody's like, McConnell hates Trump, wants nothing to do with him, right? But then, you know, votes to acquit him, says, oh, yeah, if he's the nominee in 24, you know, I'll vote for him. So, no, you are in on the joke. You don't get to have Holmes and Law and everybody else communicate to somebody like you on background or off the record how much you loathe Trump and then do everything he needs you to do. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, I don't know why he voted for acquittal, but he also he orchestrated it so that this was after January 20th. So everyone had their answer. It's like, oh, he's a former president. What do we care? So that was everyone's answer. And so then, you know, you talk about these people and, you know, for Graham, it's relevance. Right. And someone wrote another book. Maybe it was Tim Miller in his book about Christie talking about you're going to miss it. And I started thinking about that in the last couple of weeks too, Mark, in the context of like what we're seeing going on at like a CNN, right? Which is 
the people who have sort of been most on the, you know, Trump is a bad guy. This is an authoritarian movement. Like they're gone. And now you can see trimming of sales. And we are having this discussion like they don't need any money. And it's like, no, if they're not on camera behind the lights, behind the mic, hair and makeup, six hours a week, like they're not who they want to be. It's true. It becomes an addiction. I mean, Lindsay actually talks quite a bit about this in the book. He compared it to an addiction. It's like being at the dice table. I mean, John McCain used to like the dice table, right? You need the charge. You need to be there and you get this adrenaline rush. And, you know, he used to talk a lot about power and like the green room addiction was uh, Tom Coburn, right? He compared Vegas to Washington and just like the need just to be there and the sustenance that you derive. Speaking of McCain, you use his funeral is this sort of cathartic outpouring of, you know, anti-Trumpism. Maybe that's not the right expression, but you know what I'm talking about, like rage, like, you know, I have to get this out. Maybe it's a crying jag and a little bit less for George H.W. Bush, but it was the same kind of thing, right? Obviously, they were both war heroes. They were decent. They were the old Republican. They put service above everything else. And now, you know, you've got in the front row, you've got there the orange monster who, you know, hasn't served himself anything and, you know, ever. So talk about that in the context now as you see it as the culture, because there's no decency left, I don't think. I mean, Washington, D.C. has always been the swamp. That's why people call it that. But like there was at least honor among thieves. There was and patriotism among thieves. And it's backed up by actual military service or, you know, taking tough votes or doing things that can sort of speak to that. But in Washington books, you need a big funeral scene. That's always one of my philosophies. But like the first however many pages of this town was Tim Russert's funeral. So I devote probably a similar amount of time to McCain's funeral. And McCain and George Bush 41 die within probably six months of each other. And McCain's funeral, I mean, both were at the National Cathedral or the main event was at the National Cathedral. They both had several days of ceremonies in Phoenix and Houston and all over the place. But the McCain funeral was like, yeah, I mean, the media treated it as like a old Washington and like the old guard is punching back, right? And like Obama and Bush were two of the eulogists and they both had little jelly beans in their speeches that you could sort of take away as like, oh, that's a shot at Trump. And everyone seemed to think, oh, well, this will really turn things around. And of course, you know, by the time 41 passed, no one thought that that was anything but just like a little postcard from the old D.C. And Trump shows up and Hillary glowers at him and the Obamas glower. It was it was a weird, weird, weird scene. You know, actually, I was talking to my dad yesterday because I told him I was going to be talking to you. And I remember when Russert died, my dad was in Iraq and my dad writes a column online called Mullings, Mullings.com, free plug for pop. And I had left D.C. by then, right? I was living in San Francisco, left the Bush administration. And I said, you know, Russert was the guy who was not only afraid to tr speak truth to power, he was better prepared, but he also saw D.C. as something other than a zero-sum game, that these people were there to serve the American people. Yeah, he was. I mean, these were idealists. I mean, what's interesting about my own sort of evolution just in writing these books, and I've known all these people. I mean, I was always a cynic. I mean, I was always known as a cynic, and I came by honestly, and, and I knew enough politicians on both sides to know that, like, you know, neither party had a monopoly on good ideas and horses' asses and great men and women and stuff. But one of the kind of um, perverse effects of having Trump around and Trumpism sort of take root over the last few years was that I realized that I actually care. Like this stuff does matter. And that was one of the amazing thing to me is because everyone always thought, okay, you political journalists and, you know, and a lot of the political operatives that's treated as a game and so forth. But if you look at the most committed never Trumpers, they are 
often like conservatives in the media or conservatives in the consulting class. I've had more common cause with conservatives in both of those groups over the last few years than I've ever had in my life. And some of them become really good friends and I admire the hell out of them. I mean, far more than the Rob Portmans and Roy Blunts of the world. Yeah, Stuart has this line. He said, wait, it, it took the consultants to be the conscious of the party? <laughs> I mean, it's true, right? <laughs> it, it is absolutely true. It's like, what is the category of person most likely to sort of have conscience against Trumpism. And there are a lot of military people like, you know, Adam Kinzinger, John McCain. I mean, people of faith like Romney and Jeff Flake and a couple of others and people like legacy people like Romney and McCain and Liz Cheney and people like that. But it's also a lot of the consultants. I mean, they all know better and they actually have, you know, for a number of years now sort of walked the walk and talked the talk. And I think, you know, have been real paragons of courage and probably left a lot of money on the table. You know, the scene you write with Senator Mitt Romney, he calls you to let you know, to give you the 10 minute heads up, the scoop, as it were, that he's going to vote yes on impeachment. You know, I'd love to hear that interaction. I've met Governor Romney, Senator Romney several times, you know, always, I think, a fundamentally decent person. But he really comes across as three dimensional here. I mean, the way you illustrate him is a man who knows what he has to do, isn't necessarily tortured by it, but maybe is tortured by this situation. Yeah, no, he looked pretty close to tortured by the situation. And I don't think he was acting either. I mean, he stopped sleeping. I mean, he knew he was going to get like immediate abuse, heckling, like the death threat. I mean, he had been through a lot already. And it was clear that Trump was going to get acquitted. I mean, that was never in doubt, especially the first impeachment. But you know, the one cliffhanger is, would he get any Republicans or would the impeachers get any Republicans? And Romney, I mean, maybe Collins, Murkowski, but, you know, really Romney at the end was like the one cliffhanger. And I'd written about him over the years. I've always had like a kind of a fun rapport with him. And he said, hey, I'll give you the scoop on this as long as you don't press the button until I take the floor. So basically it was kind of a lame scoop. It's like, <laughs> all right, I put it on the web and then it takes him maybe a minute and a half in his speech to sort of clear his throat and do his little like, you know, four score, you know. And so like I, for a couple minutes I had a scoop. But so he takes me up to his hideaway office that morning and he, I didn't really know what to expect. I sort of assumed he'd vote against conviction because, you know, he's Mitt Romney. That's sort of been his brand. I think he deeply regretted it after he lost the presidential race. And I think he had a chance to rewrite his ending and just sitting there in the room with him. And first of all, he was eloquent. He clearly had thought about this a lot. He had written the speech. So he, you know, he had the words ready, but he was almost in tears. And he said, I can't do this. My conscience wouldn't let me do this. And I've looked for so many reasons to not do it. And I'm going to go out there. I'm going to like announce the vote and, you know, it's going to be a deluge and I'm ready for it. And then he walks out of the chamber after he made his floor speech. And one of the things I was struck by was that none of his Republican colleagues, except for Mike Braun, who was a seatmate and he shook his hand, none of them would look at him because they all, I think, quietly respected him or wished they could be that brave. Or ashamed. They couldn't. Or ashamed. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a moment of shame in a post-shame world. Yep. And he walked out alone and he was alone and he did pay a price and, you know, he still did the right thing. You know, right before we started recording, we were talking about Romney because obviously Romney was the Republican nominee in 2012, as long ago as that seems, right before Donald Trump. We were talking about in the context of, well, you know, because in that race you had Mitt Romney, sort of consistent front runner, Newt Gingrich popped up. Was it Santorum that year? Santorum, Herman Cain, like who, Michelle Bachman, a lot of these freaks had their moments. Right, but he was the last one to sort of be able to beat back the populist. 
And and I, you know, we always took this. Well, you know, remember that the normal Republican will always win because the big states, you know, with more moderate Republicans will save them in the end. And of course, we were all wrong about that. But Romney's race was actually a bell tolling for us. Just maybe none of us knew it at the time. Yeah, because part of it is because the field was so weak. I mean, it was really after Romney, it was really ragtag. I mean, no one expected Newt Gingrich or Rick Santorum or Herman Cain to go anywhere. And they really didn't. But they, you know, they had spasms. And and because there were so many of them, they kind of split the non-Romney vote and Romney managed to win. But I remember talking to to Romney about this and and a lot of his aides about this, that they were surprised that he managed to pull this out. And they don't think he would have if there was one Herman Cain or if there was one Newt Gingrich. I mean, you know, Santorum and Gingrich, if they were one, I mean, that's a pretty even fight right there. But Romney is, yeah, he's a northern Mormon who is not a Southern populist, which is where the party kind of was. And that's sort of what got Trump elected and really, you know, sustained him through all these years. So now we're 60 some days, we record this 60 some days to Election Day. And November 9th will be the official beginning of Election 2024, because that's how we torture ourselves in this country. And as you mentioned, Donald Trump's the front runner again. But the difference is, is that like, with Romney, the party was already significantly shifting, but it hadn't shifted enough that, again, without a united populist front, that it could beat him. Clearly not the case in 16. He was basically nominated by acclamation in 20, um, which is not unusual for an incumbent president. Now in 2024, you've got, you know, the DeSantis's of the world and Cruz is hanging out there and Hawley's hanging out there and Cotton's hanging out. And Rick Scott's wasting all his committee's money trying to build his own list. And Nikki Haley still wants to be in the picture. And Mike Pompeo's out there smiling like an idiot somewhere. What's your sense? I mean, if Donald Trump runs again, which I pretty almost assuredly think he will for a variety of reasons, as soon as you get in against him, you're the anti-Trump candidate. Yeah. And say it's DeSantis, Pence. I mean, I think Trump will win. I think Trump will run and I think he'll win. The nomination or the election or both? The nomination. I think he will win the nomination. And I think DeSantis, as soon as it's clear that he's not going to win, will be as sycophantic as he was. I think everyone will revert to, you know, peak sycophancy. I don't care how many seats they lose in November. I don't care how bad he is for the party. I don't care how bad they think he is as a human being, criminal, go down the list. I mean, not a single one of these people has shown that they are willing to stand up in any serious way. Let me ask you the 24 question with Trump a different way. First of all, if I were him, and thank God I'm not, but like I would wait till like July of next year. Well, first to save money, but that's never been his thing. But two, just to make everybody else crazy because they know they can't go before you do. And if they do, like the world comes down on them. But do you think there's a situation in which maybe somebody calls a Ron DeSantis and says, Ron, you're in your early 40s. You're about to be a second term governor of a state you control like East Germany. Is this really the trouble you want right now? Yeah, he'll say no. I mean, there's no question. I doubt he would do it. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know. Again, past his prologue. And I mean, look how he got the job to begin with. I mean, some of the most like cringy, these these ads about how much he loves Trump and reading the children's books to his baby about building the wall and all that. Yeah, he'll just revert to that. I mean, you know, as someone said to me, you know, shamelessness is a superpower in politics. And I think both of them are imbued with it. So if he runs again, is nominated again, but loses a second time, is the party done with him? One. And two, if it is, has the cancer metastasized so much that the patient's dead? Well, certainly the cancer is metastasized. I mean, the fact that he could survive the last election, 
Hell, the last month. Yeah, the last <laughs> month. I mean, like, it's just not going to happen. And, I mean, I think part of it is how bad does he hurt them in the midterms? Which, of course, though, he will blame on McCarthy and McConnell. Yeah, he'll, he'll take no responsibility. But, I mean, it's people look at, like, what are the three things working in Democrats' favor right now that, you know, we didn't see a couple months ago. One is obviously the abortion decision, Biden's numbers ticking up, and Trump being in the news. I mean, maybe not in that order either. I mean, Trump, I mean, he's great for Democrats. So, you know, he could cost them the Senate, probably cost them a bunch of House seats too. And what, does John Cornyn, does Steve Scalise, does Kevin McCarthy, like, do they, do they sort of take on the Liz Cheney mantle? No, of course not. I mean, who's the next Liz Cheney? I mean, no one. You think it's going to be Kevin McCarthy? You think it's going to be Elise Stefanik? No. So I think it just peters out. I think Trump is not going to go away of his own volition. I think it'll become like Elvis playing Reno, maybe playing Elko, maybe going, <laughs> eventually going Elko. down to like Carson City. I don't know. The pile gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but they'll always be committed and he won't go anywhere and say it goes down to 20%. I mean, that will make it hard to win swing stakes in the Senate and could cost you Arizona and Georgia and Ohio, or maybe not Ohio, but Michigan and Wisconsin in a general election. And, you know, I think that seems to be what Democrats are banking on in this next round. Last question before we let you go. Why is it that so many of your colleagues who also know better in the media are willingly hiring people to tow a Trump line or to roll it out on purpose when maybe we're in a post-truth era, maybe everybody can have alternative facts or their own beliefs and that makes it true. But is it just money? Is it access? What is it? I mean, first of all, I think you're talking mainly about a TV problem, right? I mean, I work in print. We are beyond reproach in print, of course. Of right? course. Yes. I mean, I can't speak to CNN but, or MSNBC, but, you know, there are a lot of conservative voices on both those networks. Now, the problem is people now define conservative as a Trumpist. I mean, I do think that a lot of news organizations have been pretty good about not hiring, I mean, election denier analysts. I mean, look, if CNN starts hiring people who start like engaging in the kind of debates that most of the elected Republicans engage in now saying, well, you know, there were a lot of doubts about the election. So why shouldn't we? I will not watch them anymore because to me, that's a line of demarcation. It's interesting to bring that up as we close here is that in New Mexico, I think maybe last month or the month before, there was a county commissioner who refused to certify the county's votes in an election, not because he had any evidence, but because he believed that the election had been rigged. And ultimately, I believe a state Supreme Court or somebody said, no, you're going to certify the election. A judge just excluded that person on the grounds of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. So I didn't realize that this was the same guy, but good for that judge. I mean, that should happen across the board. But of course, you know, Donald Trump is the lead guy. I mean, these people shouldn't be in office. And yet Republicans have nominated a lot of them. So, I mean, they got a shot. Well, and it's always interesting, you know, I think both with the Dobbs decision and I think with gerrymandering, frankly, Mark, that the dogs caught the cars, which is they now gerrymandered themselves. Otherwise, quote unquote, normal Republicans five, six, eight years ago will gerrymander themselves out of existence because they will never be able to outperform whoever the wackiest person is in that district. I think that that's right. And I think that it's hard to come back from this, too. I mean, unless you just pull the Band-Aid off, which, you know, Republicans could have done after January 6th, they could have done after the last election, and it would have been ugly, and Trump wouldn't have gone away, and it really would have messed up the party for a cycle or two, but ultimately it would have let them run as Republicans, as conservatives with some ideas. 
But no, they're still trapped and none of them really have like the balls at this point to try to start any kind of like thoughtful argument about what kind of party they want to be. Well, in, in that regard, bringing it back to Kevin McCarthy, I think there was a story last week that he went, you know, and called Newt Gingrich, you know, 75 days before an election because suddenly House Republicans needed some sort yeah, of policy platform. Right? Yeah, it's <laughs> hilarious, right? I mean, the same platform from 2020, you know, whatever Trump wants, you know, at some point, you know, maybe you want to say what you're going to do. Right. You don't have to write an 82 page plan that you or an opposition researcher will pick apart. But you can say I generally believe in that the sky is blue, at least. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Can you get some of the outtakes from like 1994, Newt, and like send them over? Just, yeah, we'll call it the contract for America. The contract to make America great again. That'll work. Yeah, I like it. That's good. Well, Mark, first and foremost, thanks for joining us. Where can our listeners find you online? They can find me online. Well, there's my Amazon page for thank you for your servitude. So if you want to read the book, buy the book, read it. I'd be thrilled and grateful. Twitter is at Mark Leibovich. It's M-A-R-K-L-E-I-B, like in Boston, O-V-I-C-H. I work at The Atlantic, so I'm on that website too. And then there's always Google.com. All right. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. I want to thank you, Mark, again for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.